Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. It has now been more than 30 years since I was randomly, terrifyingly and without warning attacked in my Perth workplace by a man I didn't know, but who would become publicly known some two and a half decades later as the Claremont serial killer. Safe now in southern Tasmania, I found it difficult to process the feelings in the context of the news of a man's arrest for violent crimes far away on the mainland. The force of bringing that man to trial became a never-ending permanent thread intricately woven into the background fabric of my life, ever-present, sometimes surreal, but always stressful. It's over now. Bradley Robert Edwards has been found guilty of murder. There will, no doubt, be more to his story that will eventually be told. This is my story about what happened to me. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm talking with Wendy Davis about her book, Don't Make a Fuss, It's Only the Claremont Serial Killer. It's a story and aftermath of a horrifying workplace attack by a man who, decades later, was convicted of the Claremont serial killings. Wendy Davis, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi, Greg, and thanks for having me. The experience of a violent workplace attack nearly 30 years ago resurfaced when you answered a phone call from a detective senior constable in 2016. Can you describe that moment when those memories came flooding back? The feelings were absolutely overwhelming. I was shocked. I felt um, anxiety, fear, and it was the beginning of continual flashbacks for me. I felt guilty when I first heard that person that had attacked me had gone on to murder other women, I felt absolutely distraught. And if I can take you back to the immediate aftermath of that attack, that's in May 1990, how did your family react when you told them what had happened? And then also, how did the police react when you reported it? I was 40 years old and I had three young teenage daughters. They remember the incident because they remember that I was very, very stressed and very withdrawn and very, very, very angry. That's what they remember. But I tried to keep it to myself. I didn't want to, um, I'm not a person that makes a great deal of fuss when trauma happens to me, I tend to withdraw. My um, husband at the time was actually in the police force and he knew that the attack had been violent and he was um, supportive to me at the beginning. But then as the days and weeks went on, I withdrew more and more. And I think he thought I was actually just getting over the trauma. But um, I was actually devastated because um, my attacker was only charged with a minor crime. So Bradley Edwards was only charged with assault. What did the police investigation entail? What did they do? I have a very, very vague memory of two 
policeman attending at the time, but I was completely traumatised and I don't remember talking to them and they definitely didn't take a statement. They went to see the offender, as far as I am aware, and the only other contact that I had with anybody following up was a meeting in the days that followed. I can't, as I say, I was still in shock. And it was a meeting with my attacker's employer where I got the impression that nobody was really listening to what I was saying about how violent the attack was. They were more interested in the fact that, as they said to me, the offender's first offence and that it would be a shame if he lost his job. So there's very little concern for you, and it sounds like more concern for him. I think we can name the company, which was then Telecom. It's not Telecom anymore, but it was then a a government-owned entity, as I understand it. This man had access to your workplace and had attended the workplace before. Had you ever come across that man before? Had you seen him before in your workplace? I had never noticed him before in my workplace. The hospital was very old and it was um, undergoing continual upgrading at that time. And um, there were often um, tradesmen and workmen around, um, and I, but I hadn't noticed him specifically. I had a quite a busy job and I was busily getting on with that, so I hadn't noticed him. But the PABX system that he was working on actually backed the annex um, where my office was at the end of the hospital ward. He attacked me from behind. He um, put a cloth over my mouth and tried to drag me into a um, secluded area at the back of my office. Um, I sustained um, bruising and contusions on my neck and um, obviously was um, in total shock. And I believed that he would be charged with at least aggravated assault and possibly attempted deprivation of liberty because it was quite obvious what he was doing. And I believe that I was very lucky to have escaped as I did. And what did his sentence entail? What did that involve? Because everything was so traumatic, I had no idea of that at the time. When I found out that he was only charged with common assault, I buried it, got on with my life. I didn't know. But in the trial, um, it came out that he was sentenced to a sexual offenders program, um, which was a a year's program, I think, and a fine. A psychiatrist and a psychologist assessment And then he was sentenced by the magistrate to a sexual offenders program. I think it was a nine-month sexual offenders program, so he had to attend that and um, and probation. It's very interesting that he had to attend a sexual offenders program, so that was recognised, but the kind of assault wasn't recognised. That suggests to me that a degree of incompetence perhaps or uh, some other attitude that was at play there. Is that the kind of thought that entered your mind at the time? Well, I have to say that I have read the heavily redacted police report from the time and it is so disheartening, so minimal. They even, I was a senior social worker in a very responsible position, and they referred to me as an admin assistant. There was no signed um, statement from me. 
So at every moment, it sounds like they were trying to downplay the whole event. It would seem to me that nobody acknowledged um, the seriousness of the incident or the unusualness of the incident because when you look at what actually happened and when the whole story came out about Bradley Edwards, it was the big, you know, it was in the beginning of of his career of escalating violence, and um, and it was a clear indicator that something was not right. And the other thing, from my perspective, is that he lived in Huntingdale. In the couple of years preceding the attack on me, there had been a number of prowler offences and also an attack on another young woman in her home, and they actually had fingerprints from those um, incidents that if someone had taken more notice of what I said, they would have been able at that stage to identify who the person was that had committed the hunting bound offences. I want to bring you forward again. When you became aware that Bradley Edwards was being charged, you, and I quote here, you found yourself being drawn into the sinister world of Bradley Edwards. I started to um, become obsessed with serial killers and, um, and true crime. I'd never taken any notice of it before. My husband was the one that was always interested in true crime. And I started to read everything I could get. I tried to find out everything that I could find out about Bradley Edwards because I was trying to actually make sense of what would possess someone to commit such a crime and how did people get to um, that stage of committing, um, you know, brutal murder. And I think it was a quest for understanding for me. And in the days after 2016, you talk about feeling two parallel, perhaps conflicting emotions, anger and guilt. Tell me about that time and how you managed those two feelings. Oh, it was um, a terrible, terrible experience for me because I knew that I did the best I could and I couldn't do any more, but there was a, an all-pervasive feeling of guilt if I could have done more, if only people had listened to me, he would not have gone on, maybe it could have been arrested, maybe um, the other women wouldn't have been attacked. And it, it just went round and round in my head, but it was accompanied by a feeling of absolute anger and fury at the police and at telecom. Um, that feeling was a feeling that had, um, I think, stayed with me um, ever since the attack. I think underneath, I think I buried that anger and it came out. So I was living with guilt and anger. As that trial progressed, it actually got... Um, Worse, as things came out in the trial um, that I didn't know about, the fact that he had admitted to the security guard that attended that he had um, intended to drag me into the toilet, the fact that he was um, sentenced to a sexual offenders program, all of these things I didn't know. So my anger grew, but at the same time, I felt guilty. You were invited to take the option to become a special witness during the, the examination of the Claremont killings. Was this an opportunity to find your voice or a moment that just deepened the trauma? In the lead up to that, I was terrified. 
and never done anything like that before. And I had absolutely no idea how I would feel. But actually, it was very cathartic being able to express myself, not just being able to express myself, but being listened to and being believed. That was the most cathartic thing for me. Um, there was still a little bit more to do for me because I was still unidentifiable at that stage and I actually really wanted to find my voice. I wanted to be identified. I wanted to speak up. I wanted to say what happened and that's why I agreed to a minutes um, interview, which was even more terrifying, I think, than appearing in the... Um, in the WA Supreme Court in some ways, but it was um, vindicating and I think really important in terms of all of us understanding how somebody like Bradley Edwards could move from being a teenage prowler to a sexual offender to a violent rapist and then a killer. This might seem like an odd question, but could you recommend that process, that idea of appearing as a witness? Could you recommend that to uh, any woman who's been attacked as a way of working through? I think women need, well, I can only speak for myself. I think it was very cathartic and um, and I, I felt believed and I think that if women have got the right support to do that, and I think it is very helpful. It was very helpful to me. It was very helpful to speak out. You said you worked as a social worker and, and, and as I understand it, as a counsellor. It just makes me wonder, who counsels the counsellor? Well, I look back and certainly nobody counselled me at the time. I don't think anybody recognised the trauma, but I don't think anybody... Um, I really don't think that anybody really understood or believed what had happened. That was the impression that I got. And it was so difficult for me to stay in my workplace afterwards that I actually handed in my resignation shortly after the attack. I, um, I applied for another job that I'd previously um, declined to apply for because I loved my work so much and um, and I left my position. And that was very difficult because I loved my work. This book, it's a memoir. It's a memoir that nobody really wants to have to write. Was writing this book something you had to do? Has it been therapeutic in some way? It's been extremely therapeutic. It started off as a way of dealing with the trauma It was that involved me after Bradley Edwards was arrested. And, um, and as it went on, um, I realised that there, there was a, um, there was a, a much um, bigger story here. Like it wasn't just all about me, but it took a few years of actually writing everything down and all my feelings to understand writing the story is an attempt to show just what can happen if the signs of escalating violence are ignored and if nobody listens to victims of abuse. From the perspective of survivors, 
Um, I feel like I'm speaking up for victims, um, even though it's really hard because of my internalisation of not making a fuss. It's very hard for me to do. And I wanted to the story to add to the chorus of women's voices to help women speak out, to help the police and authorities um, understand that women need to be more supported to speak out, and perhaps the police will be able to recognise um, unusual behaviours that um, demonstrate escalating violence and potential tragedy. Could I perhaps summarise your advice to women in a similar situation to, to actually make a fuss? Oh, look, I would say that from my life experience now, not only is it all right to make a fuss, it's actually sometimes very necessary to make a fuss. And I would encourage all women to speak out, find someone who would listen when they've experienced any type of violence. Wendy Davis, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Gregory. I've been talking to Wendy Davis about her memoir, Don't Make a Fuss, It's Only the Claremont Serial Killer. It's published by Fremantle Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.